Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, On Behalf of Everyone. It's based upon the lectionary readings for June 2, 2019. For the seventh Sunday after Easter, the Revised Common Lectionary gives us a portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the culmination of his farewell discourse to his disciples. The setting is the upper room on Monday Thursday. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, foreseen Judas's betrayal, predicted Peter's denial, promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, and taught them as if time is running out, which it is. In the final moments before his arrest, he looks toward heaven and prays. I've heard some people call the high priestly prayer the other Lord's Prayer, the one we don't memorize and recite on Sunday mornings. It's certainly not polished and poetic like the Our Father, It doesn't flow or cover its bases efficiently. It's long, rambling, and rather hard to follow. And though the disciples are meant to overhear the words, Jesus' tone has an urgency and passion that is achingly private. Jesus isn't engaging in a teaching moment with this Lord's Prayer. He's rending his heart. In preparation for writing this essay, I sat with the words of the lection for a long time, waiting to see what words or phrases would stand out. I didn't expect the magic words to be, I ask but those are the words that caught my attention. What does it mean that Jesus spends his final moments with his friends in humble, anxious supplication? Jesus, who healed the sick and fed the hungry and raised the dead, what does it mean that that same Jesus ends his ministry by asking into uncertainty, hoping into doubt, trusting into danger? In an outpouring of words and emotions, Jesus asks God to do for his followers what he himself cannot do to be for us in spirit what he can no longer be for us in body. May they be in us, he prays. May they all be one. May they know the love that founded the world. May they see the glory of God. In his beautiful book entitled Tokens of Trust, the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, describes the strangeness and wonder of this Jesus who prays. Yes, Jesus is a human being in whom God's action is at work without interruption or impediment. But wait a moment. The Jesus we meet in the Gospels is someone who prays, who speaks of putting his will and his decisions at the service of his Father. He is someone who is in a relationship of dependence on the one he prays to as Father. In him there is divine purpose, power, and action, but there is also humility, responsiveness, and receptivity. Do I know this Jesus, the one who pleads so earnestly? I think I know the Jesus who teaches, heals, resurrects, and feeds, but... Do I know this one, this vulnerable one who in this passage does the single hardest thing a friend, a lover, a spouse, a parent, a child, a teacher, a pastor ever does, sends his cherished ones into a treacherous, divisive, broken world on nothing but a hope and a prayer, and trusts the treasures of his heart to the vast mystery that is intercession? I ask, as if to say, I don't know what you will do with my asking. I don't know how or when or if you will answer this prayer. I can't force your hand. But I'm staking my life and the lives of my loved ones on your goodness, because there's literally nothing more I can do on my own. I've come to the end of what this aching love of mine can hold and guard and save, I ask. To wonder what role prayer plays in our world, a world rife with tragedy, injustice, and oppression, is to raise the hardest questions I can think of about God, questions I don't know how to answer. Does God intervene directly in human affairs? Does his intervention or lack of it depend in any way on our asking? Can prayer change God? 
As has been the case in many areas of my faith life, my beliefs about prayer have changed a lot over the years. I was raised to believe that God intervenes very directly in human affairs and that intercessory prayer has powerful and undeniable real-world effects. As a child, I believed with all my heart that prayer heals diseases, prevents car accidents, feeds hungry children in faraway countries, fends off nightmares, prevents premature death, and stops the bad guys. As a teen and young adult, much of that certainty collapsed under the weight of life experience. Some diseases didn't get better. Car accidents happened. I had nightmares. Babies starved. Young people died. And bad guys won the day. When I asked my elders to explain these discrepancies, they gave me two answers. One, you need to pray with more faith. And two, sometimes God's answer is no. Both answers struck me then and strike me now as lame. Today, I live along the borders of a more complicated world. I have friends and family members who pray for parking spots, lost house keys, little league victories, and Ivy League admissions for their children. But I also have friends who avoid intercessory prayer on principle, convinced that the true purpose of prayer has nothing to do with asking God for stuff. In their words, he's God, not Santa Claus. The challenge of intercessory prayer is that it is subjective. What looks like God's yes in my eyes might easily look like his no, his silence, or even his non-existence in yours. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the meaning we give to what happens in our lives is our final, inviolable freedom. When is an answer to prayer really an answer? When is it coincidence, randomness, a trick of light? The cost of our liberty, a cost God daily chooses to endure, is that we can't say for sure, not in this lifetime. So why do I pray? One answer is that I pray because I am compelled to do so because something in me cries out for engagement, relationship, attentiveness, and worship. I pray because my soul yearns for connection with an other who is God, and that connection is best forged in prayer. With words, without words, through laughter, through tears, in hope and in despair, prayer holds open the possibility that I am not alone, and that this broken, aching world isn't alone either. I pray, as C.S. Lewis writes, because I can't help myself, because a need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. That's a reasonable answer. But maybe this week's gospel reading offers me another one. I pray because Jesus did. I ask because Jesus asked. Asking is the last thing he did before his arrest, the last tender memory he bequeathed to his friends. He didn't awe them with the grand finale of miracles. Neither did he contemplate their futures in despair. He looked up to heaven with a trembling heart and surrendered his cherished ones to God. Jesus asked because he loved too much not to. May we bravely and humbly do likewise. For books this week, Dan reviews Interior States Essays by Megan O'Gleben. It's crazy to think that a girl who was homeschooled until the 10th grade in a fundamentalist family, spent her summers in Bible camps and attended Moody Bible Institute, now writes a monthly column for the Paris Review called Objects of Despair. But so it is. In this debut collection of 15 essays, in the words of a friend who also read the book, Megan O'Gleben decided she could think for herself. The title of the book suggests a double entendre around which the essays are organized. O'Gleben was born, raised, and has lived most of her life in the Midwest, a place its smug intellectuals dismiss as flyover country. F. Scott Fitzgerald called it the ragged edge of the universe. True, there are good reasons that places like Detroit lament the loss of its manufacturing economy that will never return to its glory days, the city declared bankruptcy in 2013, and feel that they have been left behind by the tech economy of the Silicon Valley. 
But Cleveland doesn't deny these realities. She has lived them in Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, nor is she ignorant of Berkeley, Menlo Park, Coachella, and Brooklyn. Many of her buddies moved to these places. Her nuanced reflections about geographic space, though, dig deeper than the stereotypes. Then there is the interior space of Oglieben's spiritual life, or perhaps a figurative place of Christian America that occupies many of the essays. She dropped out of Moody after two years and now describes herself as a certified non-believer. But here again, she is way too attentive and creative to be dismissive. Indeed, she finds it perverse that these essays demonstrate how she has returned obsessively to the religion I spent my early childhood trying to escape. To be a former believer is to perpetually return to the scene of the crime. And that's what these essays do. One of the more refreshing aspects about her loss of faith is that she does not romanticize the alternatives, not even the techno-spirituality of Ray Kurzweil's singularity, which she observes is partly a secular outgrowth of Christian eschatology. Whether visiting the $73 million creation museum in Kentucky, comparing MTV and contemporary Christian music, thinking about hell, analyzing the faith and politics of Mike Pence, wondering about free will and the legitimacy of Alcoholics Anonymous, or offering a partial rehabilitation of John Updike, these essays are marked by a sense of deeply conflicted ambivalence. For movies this week, Dan reviews Endgame. This 40-minute Netflix original movie by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman follows the last weeks of five terminally ill patients at the UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. The film premiered at Sundance in 2018 and was nominated for a 2019 Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. Much of the film focuses on 45-year-old Mitra and her extended Persian family. Kim decided to spend her last days at home. A Chinese man named Bruce decided to stop dialysis. An African-American woman named Pat had incurable uterine cancer. Thekla admitted that she found it difficult to make peace with death. Overseeing these five people is a creative palliative care team at UCSF that is working hard to change perceptions about death and dying. Social workers, chaplains, doctors, nurses, and volunteers. A couple of these five patients enter an affiliated program called the Zen Hospice Project. The caregivers must interact not only with the patient, but with a complicated cast of other stakeholders, children, siblings, spouses, and parents. There are no easy answers to the complicated and deeply personal questions surrounding the end of life, grief, conflicts, trade-offs, etc. But this film would nonetheless help facilitate that difficult discussion. For more on this important subject, see the book by Atul Gawande, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, and the movie version of this book by PBS Frontline, also called Being Mortal. And lastly, for poetry this week, I pray for thee a joyous life. I pray for thee a joyous life, honor, estate, and good repute. No sigh from thy breast, no tear from thine eye. No hindrance on thy path, no shadow on thy face, until thou lie down in that mansion, in the arms of Christ benign. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For June 2nd, 2019, I'm Debbie Thomas.